On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Mira, and Mira was in a toxic relationship with a financial abuser. It's a story of future faking, enmeshed parents, scams, and deceit disguised as honesty. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspective. It is that simple. And now before we get to our episode with Mira, I just first want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for sharing your thoughts on email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also a reminder, if you have not left this a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBots, etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to ranking. Now, if you have not been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Fill out the guest form, which is a button at the top of the page. You press that button, takes you to a guest form, and away we will go from there. But another way to be on our show is to be on our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. And to do that, you read a letter to your narcissist. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, side of the page, floating button, to send voicemail. Press that button, records up to five minutes, press it twice, records up to 10, and so on and so on. If you do not want to read the letter yourself and want me or my old pal Melissa, who I owe a call to, to read that voicemail or letter for you, just send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put letters to my narcissist in the subject line. And you know what, everyone? You want to support our show, you know? You can just go on to our Patreon. Yes, we have a Patreon. What's on our Patreon? Well, you have episodes that never made it to air. We have follow-up episodes with former guests, some one-off episodes with me and my old pal, Melissa, just chatting about odd subjects. Not odd, narcissist-related subjects. And we also have virtual support groups there. Yes, we have virtual support groups every Wednesday and Saturday. Great group of people. And it's growing and we're there for each other. We support each other. And it's just a really good group. And if you want to be part of our Patreon, part of all of this, you know, it's as low as $5 a month. It's a great deal. A great deal. So to become a patron of our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash NarcissistApocalypse. Or you can actually go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and click on the support group link and it'll take you to our Patreon. And I guess before we start, I just want to say thank you to Mira for being a guest on the show this week. A few things about this episode. Uh, it takes a little bit of time before we get into the actual story of the narcissist we're talking about, but we do talk more uh, about her family more than usual on these types of episodes. We talk a lot about her dad, a narcissistic father, 
as well as a little tiny bit about the relationship that uh, started before this one. And a lot of it, all, well, not a lot of it, all of it has to do with her mindset going into this relationship, how she was feeling about herself, life, and, and everything in general. So that's just a little bit uh, about that. And also, uh, she says the name of the city once that she's in, and it's Kuala Lumpur. And later on, she'll use the term or the, uh, what's it called? The letters KL instead of saying the full name, just so if anyone gets confused and didn't hear it the first time, that's what it says. And that's it. I hope everyone enjoys this episode. It's a good episode. It's a, you'll, you'll learn a lot. There's a good little tidbit in there that we discuss. And that's it. Hope everyone has a great day. And here is my episode with Mira. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Mira. How are you? I'm good. Well, I just want to thank you for joining me today. You're joining me from across the world. And, you know, it's not easy to get our times uh, straight. You know, right now for me, it's early in the morning. Right now for, for you, you could be out and doing other things, but you chose to spend your time here with me. And I thank you for it. Everyone else is going to thank you for it, for sharing your story. And I'm just going to get out of your way. And Mira, the floor is now yours. Thank you, Chad. Um, can we, like the best place to probably start is that it probably all starts with my father, really. I didn't put this in my submission. And when I really thought about my story, it starts with my father. And I was probably the ideal victim because of my father. He was what you could call a through and through narcissist. I remember being in my early 20s and I was really struggling with the narcissistic abuse because I didn't know what it was because he never hit us. I mean, he was a bit angry here and there, but there was just something that just sat under your skin and didn't feel right. And it was chaos. Growing up was total chaos. And, you know, watching my mom go through it and I have four siblings, it's really hard. And just one day I remember I was, I came across narcissistic personality disorder on Wikipedia. And that was just like, Within the first line, my whole life made sense. And I, I don't know if you've seen the opening lines of the Wikipedia page, but it goes something like this. Narcissistic personality disorder is a personality disorder characterized by a long-term pattern of exaggerated feelings of self-importance. So my dad, an excessive craving for admiration, totally my dad, and struggles with empathy. It's just tick box after tick box after tick box. And it's just everything made sense. He always thought of himself as superior somehow. But the basis in hindsight was really questionable. And even when I was younger, it just seemed so odd to me. Like he never had a university degree. And he was so obsessed about it. Like it's so specifically a degree in the UK. And all of his children would only go to UK, like he could, he would only allow us to go to UK universities. I had an interview at Cambridge of all places, but he wanted me to go to the London School of Economics because to him, Cambridge was too academic. And in the end, like I, that's what I did. I went to London School of Economics because otherwise he wouldn't support you if you, 
don't go to his choice. And just looking back, his complex had really no basis. He had one somewhat successful business a long, long time ago. But that, when he was there, got him involved in this 15-year-long court case because he upset the wrong people. And this was all on the basis of his principles. And we would never hear the end of his principles. Like, he was always right. And he was the religious one and he was the righteous one. And it's just crazy that we put up with all that. And my mom put up with all that. And growing up, to be honest, he was actually hardly around as he was traveling back and forth to the Philippines a lot. He's Malaysian and he met my German mother on a plane to London, a flight that he almost missed. And like, if I tell that to anyone, like, oh, how did your parents meet? And they're like, wow, on a plane, that's so romantic. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then it became not so romantic. But what chance did I really have if like my whole life was pinned on this epic love story? And he's Muslim. Um, and he found ways around the somewhat stricter laws here in this country because you actually need the permission from the first wife to have your other wives. But he managed to get other wives anyway. And when my brother and I were adults, he told us that he did all of this. He met all these other women and he married these other women. He, he, would, he, would, he refused to call it cheating because he married them, right? They, that was righteous in the eyes of God. And he was like, your mother wasn't there for me. I was going through the court case and she was just focused on you children. It's just... <sighs> Me and my brother knew what was going on by then, but we just, you know, you learn to keep your mouth shut because it was better than getting him angry. And like my mom, I mean, God bless her soul, like she took care of his four children that whole time, alone in a foreign country without her family and close friends. But thankfully his family always took her side and always looked after us. Even when he failed to pay for rent, he failed to pay for our college fees. And in the end, he just stopped giving my mom money. His family always looked after her and they were very generous and supported us with everything. Uh, I ended up his black sheep because I sided my mom this one night. I was probably around 24, 25 at this time. And that was the night she decided she had enough. He was going off about how his family are a bunch of bitches. His sisters are nasty people. I can't believe you guys still see them. And, and my mom was like, that's it. I've had enough. Like, these people actually help me when you're not around. And I'm not going to sit down and take this anymore. And I had seen it. I had seen enough by that point as well. I've seen my mother panic about how she was going to feed the family. And I also learned about his Philippine family by then. And there was also another family in Malaysia. And that just destroyed his whole narrative of, I made these sacrifices for the family. And just, it was not true. Like he was just living another life out in Manila. And all these women, like, I think the last wife is just, like, nine years my senior. 
like there's really not much of an age gap. <laughs> and yeah, some of them had children with him and we think that they got pregnant before he married them. Um, it's just crazy. And after that big fight, like I went no contact. I was like, I refuse to have this man in my life. My siblings were a bit younger at the time. And, you know, like, even though I advised them, look, like, he's not a good person. You should, you should just be careful. Everybody's looking for parental affection, right? Even though it's a bit dodgy. But, you know, I, I decided, you know what, they will have, they will come to their own understanding one day. But it came to a point where it was... 2018 maybe and he came around to say oh he had a stroke in the Philippines and my brother almost flew to the southern Philippines where he was in a hospital which is a really really dangerous place if you look Caucasian which we do and he had almost booked a flight when suddenly it backtracked and it's like oh we don't need you here it's fine um, and we were pulled back and we were like, okay, but, um, and then we sort of left it at that. And then a month later, he turned back, he turned up back in Malaysia and his story had evolved from a stroke to a brain tumor. And he had this associate, this, this woman who we had known over the time, like he was in and out of our lives and she's what you call a flying monkey, right? She was his minion. She was doing whatever he asked her to do. Um, there was this one time just before my family got evicted where she sat down at the dinner table with my father and siblings. And my, my father told my siblings that um, I've, I've stopped being able to pay rent. Um, the landlord is going to kick you out, but don't tell your mom. And this woman sat there and heard all that and nobody warned my mom. And then the landlord did come around and said, look, your husband stopped paying rent. I'm going to like, I know you've lived here and I, for, oh, gosh, eight years, 10 years, but I, I can't, I can't keep you guys here, but I feel really sorry for you. I know your husband's an unreliable man. He actually gave us a month's rent to help us to move out. And he really didn't have to. And I don't know, my mom just has this luck. <laughs> people see her and, you know, she's in a foreign country. I mean, people, we all speak English here. But it's just, she would have never been able to get like a steady job. You know, she was out of the job market for ages because she had the kids. <sighs> and then, you know, so we got evicted and then... Many years later, he comes around and this associate like messages my middle sister to say that he was dying from this brain tumor and he really wanted to see her. And she was probably one of the last of the siblings who was still somewhat in contact with him. And she, re she was really, really sad that he wasn't around. So that was horrifying for her to get that type of message. And she was really, really upset. But because she was there when we went through the whole news about the stroke and we were really beginning to doubt his story that she just chose then to also go no contact. And 
I felt like, okay, no contact is not working now. So what I did was I wrote an open letter to the adult members of my extended family. And my extended family here is huge, like his family, right? My grandmother, his mother had 16 siblings. So my father has lots and lots of cousins. And I've lost count now how many of them there are. So I sent his open letter and I listed Everything he had done wrong to my mother, I listed that he cheated on her, I listed that he owed her money, that he maxed out her credit cards, like he's stopped paying for my brother's university fees, he stopped and he hasn't bothered he hasn't bothered us since. Like he he's disappeared. Except last year, when for some reason he finally asked my mother for a divorce. Now, it sounds weird, right? My mother was married to him this whole time, but she didn't dare because she was so worried that she would lose her visa and therefore lose us kids um, while we were growing up, while my sisters were still in school. Um, But then she finally got her permanent residence card and that wasn't a worry anymore. So she was like, okay. This is it. We're getting a divorce. And she went through with it. And you can imagine when it became official, all of us got together to the house and we put on music. We blasted music and we had a dance party to celebrate the end of that horror show for my mother. We were truly finally free of my father. And we haven't heard from him since. Good riddance. So with a father like that, I think I just became a walking target for narcs. While most people would describe me as self-confident, extroverted, I'm good looking, I have brains. I'm also six feet tall. In Southeast Asia, where the average height of a man is, I don't know, 165 centimeters. So I was objectified from a young age because they have this fascination with um mixed race children here and it felt like older men couldn't make out that I was as young as I was and they would flirt with me and everyone my age didn't I mean of course not I mean guys my age who would be interested in a tall girl um so that ate at me I think and it's silly in hindsight but It's probably one of the reasons why I didn't have my first boyfriend until I was 18. And this first boyfriend, he was seven years older, shorter than me, unfortunately, but I told myself it didn't matter. And this was my first narc. He was a covert narc. You wouldn't think it, but the longer you sit with him, you realize he just saps the energy out of you. And he was quite a long relationship, seven years. And even after I left that relationship, I had a conversation with my friend years later and I was like, yeah, but he's not an arc. And she was like, isn't he? And I was like, oh my God, he was. But he just played victim so well. He was the victim of the whole world and everybody's agendas. And he had enemies. And that's just... I knew that was weird back then, but I was 18. And I was just, I didn't know normal people didn't have enemies. I knew it was weird, but like I didn't know. He would 
used to tell me things like, oh, you have such a good heart. And I just, I think I just spent that whole relationship trying to fix him and trying to heal his pain. But he would put me down anytime he could. Like for a long time, he wouldn't even acknowledge me as his girlfriend. It was maybe one and a half years later that I was finally his girlfriend. Like he was living with his parents and I'd be having meals with them and became pretty much part of the family. But when they'd ask him, he would be like, none of your business. And then he'd storm off. And I'm just left there like awkward trying to deal in the aftermath of those tantrums. And he was always eggshells. So spending seven years with him between the ages of 18 to 25 took away so much of my confidence. I was always in the wrong somehow. Like when I chose to do, chose to go to London for my studies, I was wrong for doing that. I never dressed well enough. And he felt like I didn't make an effort to look good. I didn't make an effort to put on makeup. And it just, it just eats at your self-confidence. And as time went on, I would start questioning how rude he was about other people he doesn't even know. He particularly enjoyed calling other women like skanks and whores. It didn't sit well with me at all. And I would always tell him off. And then he'd have an even bigger telling off. It's like, I know people better than you do. I'm older than you. And I was just like, okay, fine. But man, that was a big red flag. But I, I was so young. How could I have known Here's the kicker, right? My father liked him. <laughs> that's just like now that when I think about it, I'm just like, okay, that that should have been a warning sign. And then we broke up. And then you know how it is, you like they pull you in and you're on and off for a bit. But he got more and more controlling. And he was telling me things like, I my people are my people are watching you. And he was saying that, oh, you know, because you're on Tinder, there's all these pictures of you in the internet, in like unsavory blogs and stuff like that. And really, by the end, I was terrified of him. I broke up for good with him mid-2015. And he was still sending me strange and creepy messages. It would just be like a one-liner, like, yes, in the middle of the day. And that would just, like, it's so creepy, right? Just, yes. And I would just don't know what to do. And then I'd be, like, texting back hours later. And it's like, what do you mean, yes? And he would be like, yes, to whatever you were thinking at the time. <laughs> he probably just had a power trip from that, right? And I was like, what? I was driving back from a holiday with friends at that time. So you have grown up with your dad, who is one type of narcissist that you're used to this kind of chaos in a way. You then fall uh, in love and you date some guy for seven years and he's a covert a narcissist. And as soon as that is over, almost immediately or within a few months at least, you're about to meet the person that this story in this podcast is going to be mostly about. And that is a narcissist who's a scam artist type of yes. narcissist. So yes. I just want to, for everyone who has been listening, you know, here we're about to get into, you know, all the lead up of, you know, what has gone on, what you're used to in life. And, 
you know, the relationships that you've had uh, and what your belief systems might be. And, you know, going into this, you know, whatever is about to happen, um, you know, a lot of your belief systems and the feelings about yourself and all those things have been formed a lot already. And now it's going to be exacerbated in a, in a big way. Yes, absolutely. You, you put it very well there. So when I sent this submission to you, right, I, I referred to him as a Dirty John. Have you watched that series, Dirty John, the one with Eric Bana and Connie Britton? So I've watched the documentary, I think that was called Dirty John. And that was about, uh, I think it was like three women who were scammed by this one guy. And then I know of the Eric Bana one. I actually started watching the second season of Dirty John and I haven't watched the first one. So I've been watching the one with Amanda Peet. Uh, yeah, the Betty Broderick one, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 So like, I watched this Dirty John sometime last year. One of those lockdown binges, right? And it just made me squirm in my skin. It was so triggering because I had just left a Daddy John scenario of my own by that point. It doesn't involve attempted murder. Sorry for the um, spoiler. <laughs> so it's not to that extent. But I mean, touch wood, I pray that it never comes to that to me or any of the women he gets involved with. But it's just... In the aftermath of my press, my separation with a two-and-a-half-year-old in tow, I was in the process of trying to untangle the lies and piece together the true story of what he was and what had actually happened. And I came to realize that I had married this god-awful narcissist who had a very obvious modus operandi at that point. And he, just, he, he preys on women and he identifies certain types of women, love bombs them, moves the relationship quickly to the next stage, and then he gets them to fulfill his financial whims while continuing to cheat on them and push them into debt. I can confirm this happened to the ex before me and then me, and I'm pretty sure it's happening to the girl who he's with now, his latest victim. And with me and the latest victim, he unfortunately convinced us to have a child with him, which now forces us to be fearful of a long, lifelong tie with him. So we met August 2015, and he had just come to town from Bangkok, and his friends who were friends of my new friend were in town for a conference, and they're all British. And... The boys and the girls had their own pretty parties and we met at my friend's bar and he was wasted when he, we were introducing ourselves to each other and he turned around and he looked at me and I'm not kidding, he literally took a step backwards like he was hit by this invisible blast and he was just like, you're so beautiful. And I mean, I'm used to attention, but he was so over the top and he was also very persistent and the whole night he bump into me and he just look at me like he was in complete awe and would always need to like shake his head in disbelief before he walked away. And it was, his friend was hitting on me and he got a bit traumatic and he was like pulling at his friend's shirt and he almost get into a fist fight on the dance floor I was just like, what on earth is going on? I tell him to stop fighting and I remove myself from the situation. And they 
got off the dance floor and continued to have a verbal argument over me. And then I walked past them and they were like, well, who do you want? And I was like, oh my gosh, grow up. And I went back to my friends. But I think his friend gave up. So they've moved on to Beach Club and he's still trying to hang around and uh, get my number at least because he was in Kuala Lumpur for training. He's going to be around for a few months. And I think what won me over was that he broke out into this freestyle rap. I was like, okay, 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 here's my number. And then we parted ways. Um, we stayed in touch. And he was like trying to be cute and sweet. So I was like, okay, I agree. Let's go out on a date. And it was one of those like fairy tale first dates because we went to get ice cream and then the sun was setting and then there was fairy lights in the trees. And then he took me to this bridge and we had our first proper kiss. And five months later, he recreates this first date, like the same thing. Let's go get ice cream. Let's walk in the park. Let's kiss on the bridge. And he gets down on one, de- one knee at this bridge, except when he was trying to propose, it was pouring so heavily and we're talking tropical storm. And looking back, maybe that was just the universe trying to give me a warning. And we went from zero to 50 very quickly, right? We met, we went out on our first date early September, got engaged February. Um, so there was this one. So yeah. sorry. So in this time, what are the things that you like about him the most? He paid attention to me the way nobody else did. Um, or even my, even my ex before him, right? Like he was just showering me with attention. He put me on a pedestal. Like I was so beautiful. I'm so smart. Like I'm so smart. Oh, you're so amazing. You're the most amazing person I have ever met. And that always feels good. And actually it's a good thing I point this out because he was also, I guess, doing this mirroring thing. So we spoke about a family and he talked about like his father being abusive. And I was like, oh yes, my father was abusive too. So it was a trauma bond, right? Like, oh, we get it. We had these single, like practically single moms who had to do it all on their own. And uh, we love our moms so much and we'd do anything for them. And We've had such hard lives because our moms didn't have money and we had to like fend for ourselves. Uh, it was, it was so, in, I just remember it being so intense, especially like those first weeks. And I think by the fifth or sixth week, he was telling my friends and a night out, Oh, that's my girlfriend. That's my girlfriend. And I was like, I honestly thought that, Oh, wow. Here's my Prince charming, you know, after being, dragged down in the last relationship and in the last relationship the guy at the end was like yeah I did have to ring in my drawer the whole time but you were so badly behaved that I didn't want to propose to you and that hurts somehow you know when you're already so broken down that when somebody says something like that it hurts so here comes this guy who's just so good at talking and presenting himself and but if you really think about it, he has nothing really to show for himself, right? He started, I don't know, like. Well, I have, I have a question. Yeah. So, so, you know, eventually 
we're going to find out, as you already stated, that he did swindle some money. So yeah. uh, what's his job? Is he a professional at what he does? Is he always getting a new job? Is it always someone else's fault if the, if uh, he's always getting a new job? Like, hundred percent uh, amongst his friends, um, is he? Does he have like a, a standing? Do you feel like he's a, a guy around town kind of guy, like on the up and up with all these dreams or passions, and that you're really into that, and you kind of grab onto that as well and want to like help him along the way? I'm just throwing yeah. I'm just throwing spaghetti against the wall, so I don't really know that much. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um. No, absolutely. Like he, I think he started his career as like a teacher in Bangkok and around, he told me around the age of 24, he was like, oh, I didn't want to live my life this way. I wanted, I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to be known for something. Um, So he quit that and went into sales. And I think it was a, a whole string of sales jobs. And there was a stint with a social media job and then, he wanted, yeah, he wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to have a family. He couldn't do it where he was. So uh, he wanted to build all that. And when he came to KL, he, had, he told me at the time that it was a call center. They were selling advertisements to clients in Europe, which is why he was um, always working odd hours, like more towards the night. But if I think about it now, because he refuses to put that time or like when we were still together, he refuses to put that time at the call center on his CV. Like maybe it was a scam call center because towards the end, he was like, oh, I, 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 I morally can't take it working there anymore. And he would go in late and get told off and um, he would, he would, it would always be someone else's fault that. The, work, the job didn't work out. So, yeah, I, I fell for all of it. And, like, you know, I didn't grow up with a whole family. So I just, I like, if somebody says, well, I want to build this family and I want to have this family life, you, you, you fall for it, right? And then there was this one night, and this was just six weeks into our dating at the time. And we were out in a town. And... He he had given me his phone and went to the toilet, but he somehow lost me. And then that made him panic. And by the time he found me, he was a complete wreck, like tears in his eyes and freaking out. And I was like, what is going on? And he's like, I feel so guilty. I feel so guilty. And I'm like, what, 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 what? Like, I don't understand. And then he's blurted out, like, I still have a girlfriend back in Bangkok. And I was so shocked. I was so shattered. And I could not process what was going on because he had been six weeks of this intense love bomb bubble. But he was so good at turning that around and create even more emotional intensity around it that it just clouded my judgment. He convinced me to go back home with him. And it was probably that night he told me he loved me for the first time. And I, was just, I just remember sitting in the bed in shock. And he told me, I don't love her. I love you. I'm only with her because I owe her all this money. And I think this is the part of the story where I will tell her story. His first victim, or at least to my knowledge. 
And just before you begin, I just want to point out for everyone, here is a moment where he is actually admitting to uh, his deceitfulness and in the process of doing it kind of makes himself, you know, if he's the one feeling guilty or whatever, so you're kind of caretaking him, and then he throws the love word out there, which then kind of flips the situation, so you're not mad at him anymore, and you know, and now you're in this connected, close situation where you know the truth is being told, and that you're honest with each other, where in reality there was no honesty at all, but he's yes. he's really flipped it in that way to make it that way, and throwing the love word out there just um, you know kind of puts the seal on it and goes like, okay, I got through this and now she's with me. Yes. They're, they're such textbooks, aren't they? Narcissists. Uh, so of course, when he told me this story, I really felt for him. And like, you're right. I wanted to be the one who saves him. But yeah, looking back, she was a victim as well. And I mean, he was 30 when he met me, 28 when he met her. I really hope that he wasn't, he didn't really have that long of a track record at that time. But I think he was always manipulating women. And, you know, this is where it's like honesty, but deceit. He would tell me, oh, I've cheated on all my past girlfriends, but I would never cheat on you. And yeah, right. So, I mean, I really feel for this girl now. Because I noticed after my separation that was, she was still watching my Instagram stories. So I reached out to her and I apologized for my part in her hurt. I told her, well, you know, I know now he's a dangerous, horrible person and I fell for it. And I'm another one of his victims. So I want to approach this part. Um, what I know through it, it was told to me by him, but I now see it through her lens or even my lens. Like I can put myself in her shoes now and I want to do so with complete respect for her because she really didn't deserve this. So his version was that she was this accountant who was so calculative because she would note down and split all the bills all the time when they went out on dates. But when he took her out on dates, he would never like split the bill when he had money, but when he didn't have money, you know, she would split the bill. And he also told me that at the time he met her, he had he had taken on this commission only finance job and turns out he was not very good at it. So he stopped earning he stopped being able to pay rent and general living expenses, but he didn't care because these finance people had access to cocaine and all those drugs and he was partying with them and they would just pay for him. But that left him essentially homeless in Bangkok. And he was shuffling between some friends' houses. And, um, you know, at this time, he's 27, 28 years old and his mother still had to send him money periodically for him to survive. Now, his relationship with his mother is a whole other story. I might get that I might get to that later. So, back to this ex. He told me once that he had this mentor in his life that told him he should be aiming for the girls in the Tatler magazines, the ones that come from money or at least have some money. So, the ironic thing is like I had appeared twice in 
the local Tatler magazine. So that, you know, that was his premonition come true in a way. And then this ex, uh, the accountant, she was a university educated girl who was supporting her mother back home with a job at a big four firm, which is really impressive. And she had her own apartment in Bangkok, you know, as in she purchased and owned this and it was not rented. She wasn't from a rich family. She was from like a smaller town up north. So, but she was a huge step up from the bar girls he was still picking up at that point. And he would tell me the stories like, oh, he convinced her to buy a new couch, would pay her back one day. Oh, he would ask her to buy a laptop for him and he will pay her back one day. There was this one time he fell asleep while the washing machine was running and it was one of those really old wonky ones and the apartment flooded. And while he frantically tried to like clean up, like a lot of things were damaged and she obviously freaked out and he made these promises like he would, he would, he would take care of it. He will pay for it. And he got laid off, I think that mid-2015, which sort of led to this job opportunity where they required him to do training. So he was always was always intended to be a training in KL first. And then he was supposed to go back to Pattaya, another town in Thailand. Um, and then he met me. And was cheating on her with me. And right after he told me about her, he actually went back to Bangkok and he promised me, he promised me, no, 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 I won't see her. I won't meet her. Um, I love you. Don't worry about it. But he was actually still with her. And he went back to their apartment and slept in the same bed with her and even took her to a friend's wedding. And that weekend, he got really drunk and high, and he missed his flight, and she didn't want to pay for his ticket. She, was, she, she just had this horrible weekend with him after not seeing him for weeks, and she was like, I'm not paying for another. Like, I paid for the return ticket, and you missed it. I'm not replacing it. So he was, like, panicking. He's like, I'm going to lose my job. So I forked out some money. I didn't know that she paid for it, and then I ended up forking out some money to like get him back because I didn't want him to lose the job because if he loses his job, then he may not be in KL. And I think by then he was already telling me, oh, you know, I might stay on. I might like, I, I love you and you're the most amazing person I've ever met. I want to figure out a way to stay in KL. And he came back from Bangkok. And then that night I came over with home cooked, clean food, like, because Whenever he goes on these binges, like he would have this IBS flare and it would be so bad, like his stomach is like burning. So I was this, you know, I obviously have this complex, right? I need to save them. I need to nurture them. So I came with all this food so that he doesn't have to always order takeaway because what's available at midnight after he finishes work. And this is really bad. And you can edit this out if you want. But I felt that night when we were getting intimate that he's, he, he had this smell, you know, that, that, that 
this is this awful smell. And he immediately got up to wash. But I couldn't shake off this feeling then that he probably had sex with someone else earlier that day. But I, I think whenever I would think that, I would be in too much shock and he would come over and like, you know, smother me and it will all be okay again. Um, in the end, I think he, he racked up a total debt of about 10,000 US dollars with her. And I mean, I will give him some credit. He did attempt to pay off most of it. But then he realized he really didn't want to part, part with that money because he was finally making money in KL. He was finally making money at this new job. So I didn't know this was happening, but he was schmoozing her. He was sweet talking and promising her that once he made more money and could leave KL and he would come back and get back with her because his car is still there with her. Um, but he had already proposed to me at that time. And she had no idea. And I had no idea that he was still doing all this. And he told me he, oh, he met like, oh, yeah, she, 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 she's, she's agreed to take my car value. So the debt's reduced to about 7,000 US dollars. Um, and he left it at that. But a few months later, like she was still trying to call him, still trying to reach out to him because he sort of left it open-ended, right? Like, oh, we can still be friends. And somehow she found out the truth that he was with me and I was engaged. And she got so angry and she went all around his friends and family, anybody who would listen, like, he owes me money. He didn't pay me back the full amount. I want the full amount right now. But his mother and his friends were all complicit in all of this. Like, they just shut her down and be like, nope, none of our business. We're not, we're not going to handle his business for him. And he was like, she was just left stranded. And, you know, here's a, here's a woman, like a good woman, who's supporting her mom back home. And this guy just left her up and dry. Um, yeah, honestly, like just, just looking back on them, like uh, looking back at that time, I, I feel so bad that I cited him through all of it. But what did I know then? I was just so blinded by this intensity of this so-called love. And he just manipulated me and this, this need to be helpful, this need to be good and he just used that over and over again um then there was this one night where we went to a comedy show and then we met some of my friends after and these were not the friends we normally hang out with and he was so drunk and he was directing some racial slurs at some of the people in the bar so obviously like they all got angry who is this foreigner like making fun of us so he got into a fight and his shirt got ripped and he fell down on the road and I had to jump in screaming to get all of them to stop and my friends were like so scared for me they like separated us and I went back with another friend to stay with her but he would eventually find me and like you know he's at my feet sobbing I'm sorry I'm sorry they pushed first they hurt me first and 
like I'm crying, he's crying, and he somehow convinces me to stay. And this caused complete isolation from those friends. And these were my friends from college because I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed that I went back. And one of my guy friends who was there that night called me to warn me. And he was like, this guy is dangerous. You, you, you don't know abuse. You're quite innocent. I, I'm telling you this because I'm protecting you. But I, I, I was sitting there listening to him. And I was like, yeah, but I've seen you hit your girlfriend. I don't understand why you're telling me this. I, I was so confused. I was like, I've seen him abusive girlfriend how how can he talk about my boyfriend being abusive you know my, my boyfriend never hit me unfortunately i'm no longer friends with this group um because that's what happens in isolation right so of course there were red flags here and there but you know what they're like there's so many wonderful times in between too and it was fairy tale it was romantic we talked about being a team and building our lives together we used to sit down in the morning and meditate together um and dream of this life that we were going to have and he he had this he always told me about this dream he's driving his white porsche and he's coming to this grand house and i'm there with two kids running between my feet and another one on the way and i bought that image hook line and sinker and here's yeah here's a guy who told me he wanted kids like it's nothing more than wanting a family and then we found out we were pregnant two days before our wedding day. And that was literally when things really got, like, for me, that was the turning point. Like, if before there were hints that he might have been abusive, there was, it was like the point of no return. After we got married, after I, had, like, after I got pregnant, and I, re- I remember reading something that, that, that does happen. Abuse does pick up after this point because I guess they've trapped you now they've got you you can't run away now and you know by that time he stopped being able to make the money he was making he 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 made this money he paid off his tyx he was making money for our wedding but when we when we were like approaching our wedding we were uh, to two to three thousand us dollars short so we borrowed this money from his mother and then we came like i thought we were going to stay on in the uk we got married in the uk so i thought we were going to stay on and we but then he panicked and he's like no 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 you need to go back i need to go to this job i can't get a job here in the uk i need to go back and make this money so okay so we went back he only stayed at this job for another four months and he hated it and he was talking about how he felt too guilty doing it and then somebody spoke to him and said oh i'm founding a uh music studio um i think you'd be great you know to get clients and uh develop the business and he was like yes i'll do that i'll do anything but this call center job at that point and he loved it because he was able to talk to celebrities and go out at night and uh, one of one part of their business models representing um, 
music artists was like to put them in bars and stuff. So honestly, like I was four or five months pregnant at the time and he was already like hardly there. And he probably made some money in the first two months from like the commissions of, you know, putting these acts in bars and stuff. But then he wasn't that motivated to do it anymore. And he was so stressed about, oh, I'm, uh, there's this kid coming and uh, um, I'm so stressed. And then he was high half the time on weed and he stopped earning money. And there I was like left in a lurch, like we just moved house. This house is only half furnished. We don't have furniture in this house. We have a baby coming. We don't have a crib. We don't have a changing table. We don't have his clothes. And like, I maybe only had like two credit cards at the time and they were already close to maxing out because he always needed to go on visa runs. And, uh, you know, like we put our flights on those cards so they, they were still being paid off. So I, out of desperation, we said, okay, okay, uh, I'll take out a personal loan uh, to the tune of 40,000 US dollars because we had to pay his mom money. We had to pay his mom back. Um, we had, we, like, we didn't have any, we, we didn't have our own furniture. We didn't have baby furniture. We knew we had to pay for the child's birth because um, there was just no way we were doing it through the public health care system here and we knew it was going to be expensive. And it turned out to be really expensive because of the emergency C-section and uh, the baby had jaundice. So that bill was 5,000 US dollars in the end of the day, like just to have the baby. So like big chunks of money were coming out and he stopped earning so I was paying rent out of this personal loan. I was paying for food and like just to survive. And he would still be going out and he'd still somehow find ways to grab a pocket of money to grab his weed because he didn't stop with his weed, even though he promised to. And by the, by the time I left, there was still so much of this debt left, but I had a new job that enabled me to continue paying. Like, then we, you know, we, I was forced to take out another credit card and one of them he exclusively used and he would s easily spend like 200 US dollars a night on this card drinking. And this, this is financial abuse. And I believe now that he did this deliberately he knows what he's doing and it makes, so if marrying them or like getting, having a baby with them doesn't get you stuck, being in debt gets you stuck. And I think this happened to his Tyx as well. Like, oh my God, like he's taken so much money from me. Cause like these amounts in our currency is a lot of money. I think even it's even a lot in U, like US dollars. Right. But to us, it's huge. Um, so it happened to his Tyx. It happened to me. And I'm pretty sure it's happening to his current victim now, who only after about three to four months of dating him, was convinced by him to let him move in with her. And like, KL, KL is a small city. Um, you, 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 you can't get away with things in KL. So I heard on a grapevine that she is now pregnant. 
So he's moving in. He's moving at a faster pace. Like with his ex, he didn't marry her, but moved in with her. With me, he married, like proposed to me in five months and married me 15 months later with this girl. Like he just knocked her up, like moved in with her and knocked her up. And it's just, it just made me so sick to my stomach, like piecing this together. And I know what's going to happen to her now. And I'm just so heartbroken for her. Like, I just, oh, you know, it just gives me chills thinking that this is happening to another woman. Like I mentioned before, right, that we found out we were pregnant before the wedding. And, but when I started showing, he was like, I'm not attracted to a pregnant woman. So he completely withheld affection from me. Like, he wouldn't even kiss me. He would rather go to his room to have a, like, a puff from his bong before he comes out. And then by then, like, I'm, like, pregnant and I, I'm, like, grossed out by everything. And I'm like, ugh, I don't want to kiss you either. But he wouldn't even hold me. And he was like, well, I didn't want to make you excited, you know. Like, I, I really, like, sexually, I'm not attracted to a pregnant woman. And he just drove me to a point where I was crying and begging for affection from my own husband. And I just remember that being so devastating because like he had like stomped me down to a pulp, like from being on a pedestal, like he had just reduced me to crying and begging just to be held like a human being. and I know this like, is happening to her now too. And then we had this baby and like, it, it didn't stop. Like two days, two days after this baby was born, he, it was the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather flight fight. The Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight. And he idolizes Conor McGregor. And we were in the hospital. And I had an emergency C-section. So somebody had cut this huge thing across my abdomen to take the baby out because we almost lost the baby because we lost the heartbeat. And two days later, he's like, I really want to watch this match. And I'm like, "Um, can't you watch it on your phone? Like in the hospital, he's like, no, you know what it's like. Sports is better when you watch it live with people. And I was just like, fine, then go. But how long is a fight, right? You should be back in two hours. Oh, no. He stayed out. Like due to the time difference, it basically was in a bar from like 11 a.m. and didn't come back till 6 p.m. while I was in hospital with a newborn. And then he wasn't at the bar the whole time. He took two complete strangers to our house to get high. And I know this because my sister went, like we couldn't reach him and we needed stuff from my house. And my sister went to my apartment and she bumped into them and he was like completely drunk in stone. And he's like, oh shit. Oh, right. Uh, I should go to the hospital. And he drove to the hospital in that state. And I'm like, it's just 
was a nightmare in the hospital. Even the nurses were too scared to come into the room. And that the the doctor actually came in, and she like she's still my doctor to this day. And she was like, "That was so toxic," and it was one of the worst things I had ever seen. So she had walked in, and she was like, she, she did it nicely. She was like, "Hey, you know, uh, I think it would be better for." you and your wife if maybe you got some rest at home and then she can rest and then let's just do this again tomorrow i was so grateful for her when she did that because it was just awful and his drinking just never stopped and like he hates it if i ever ever even hint at oh maybe you're an alcoholic because he would turn around and he'd be like you only call me an alcoholic because my father was one and you're being hurtful you know that hurts me i am not like my father but he was drinking easily over five units of alcohol in a single night he would he would not be drinking just one or two beers he be drinking six beers and a few shots two to three times a week and then weekends were complete write-offs because he would be out all friday and be so hung over on saturday and sunday and high and stoned and baked you know like he was just on it and i would be left with the baby all alone in that apartment and like in the beginning, I was like recovering from a C-section. So I'm hunched over trying to get things done. And then the baby got bigger and he would still not be there. And we'd start fighting. If we didn't really fight before, we were really fighting now. And one night he turned around and he was like, you're a Muslim C-word. And I was in such shock. And because of the reaction I gave... That stuck for every single verbal argument since. And then he, he started getting physical. Like, I'd have to run away to get, like, I'd run away to get away from him. And he grabbed me so hard that I bruised. And then one night I had to run to the balcony to try and get away from him, like, like close the balcony door. And then one night he punched a wall next to my face and broke his hand. And at that time, I had just found out we were pregnant again. And a week after that, like, we didn't know it was broken. But two days later, it still looked bad. So we went for an x-ray and it was totally broken. And he had to go for surgery and he was angry at me. And I, it was so stressful. And I, I miscarried. And that didn't matter to him. I was bleeding out and he didn't care. Um, yeah. But this, after I found out he was cheating on me, um, I, I guess it makes sense now because, you know, he wasn't affectionate to me and he's a sexual person, so he must have been getting it somewhere else. And then when our son was about one and a half years old, I felt like he was acting weird. Like he was really being really extra nice. And he always operates from guilt. Um, so when he's nice to me, it's because he's guilty of something. If he sends flowers to my office, 
it's because he's guilty of something. <laughs> so whenever he sent flowers to my office, my, my colleagues are like, oh, what is that? Is it your anniversary? And I'm like, no. He's saying sorry for something. So I'd be embarrassed if he sent me for, like flowers. And he gave me this. So coming back to this, he gave me this perfect weekend. The, the weekend that I always begged to have as a family. We went out for brunch. We went out to the park. He played with our kid. We like He had his feet in the little stream playing with our kid. And even though it was so perfect, it was everything I wanted. I had this gut feeling that something was wrong. And one night I saw his phone was out on the coffee table while he was in bed asleep. And since he told me the password after we got married, like on the flight back from London, he was like, this is my password. I want you to trust me. I don't want to hide anything from you. And, and he didn't change the password since. And I logged in and I was looking around. I didn't really find anything. And then, I got into this recently deleted folder, like all the new phones have this folder and they were videos and photos of him sending back and forth of this woman, possibly Thai in lingerie and he's in his underwear and he's and she's, and that was the most horrible thing because I had trusted him until that point. And I was in shock. And he loves he loves to say, I didn't actually cheat on you. I never slept with anyone. But I think he had been doing this for a while. And the other thing I found on his phone was this collection of photos, which were clearly of prostitutes available in KL. And they would be like, oh, like they would mark like this is a Thai and then there was a number, and then this is a Vietnamese, and there was a number, and it's a Cambodian, and there was a number, clearly the way he likes them. And it was like a catalog on his phone. So when I confronted him, like, about the cheating, like, the videos I had found, and I still stayed with him, like, for nine months after that, because I was so stuck in the debt. Like, we had three credit cards near maxing out, and I had a job that wasn't really paying that well, and this young child... And I was caring for him exclusively on my own. I was stuck. I was trapped. I was exhausted. And I was spiraling. And he was pinning all our problems on me. I wasn't forgiving enough. I, he didn't actually cheat. And I'm just not forgiving him. And that's toxic for our relationship. And I was less focused on him since he had a baby. Like, I'm a wonderful mother, he would say. You're a wonderful mother. And I want that for my child. But you stopped paying attention to me. And... You always called me an alcoholic and you'd give me looks if I came home drunk. And I was just like, how is any of this my fault? But I was broken down to a pulp at that point and I was exhausted. But after the cheating, even the, like from the time I had cheating, I, had, I, I knew then that I'm going to take pictures of this and I'm going to tuck it away. I'm going to send it to somebody. I told my friends, like, I'm giving you this folder, but you don't open it until I ask, I ask it from you again. And I was putting things in my Google Drive just in case like, he could access my stuff. So I, like, I had two accounts, so I like, kept stuff in a Google Drive on another account just in case. Um, and I was saving our WhatsApp chats in case my, fo my phone never broke and I would lose it um, because... I was at that time watching my friend leave her abuser and 
we found out how evidence is so, so important. So I was tucking away evidence this whole time and it's proving to be useful now. Um, and after the cheating, like, I was like, I don't know what's wrong and I don't know what's wrong with you. I want you to go to therapy. But I didn't know that therapy is pointless with a narcissist. They can manipulate the heck out of the therapy system. There's this book by uh, Lundy Bancroft. Um, why does he do that? You know it? Yeah. So, you know, and he talks in that about, about a different type of therapy and intervention that is needed with narcissists and abusers. And even then, don't expect to be able to fix them to become a 100% perfectly functioning, empathetic adult. Like, it's, these these people are hopeless in that sense. But something like that would not even be available in a country like Malaysia. Uh, he went to therapy. Yeah, he went one session. He came out of it saying, well, he told me I'm high-functioning and highly motivated and um, I'm, I should just continue meditating and everything is fine with me. I was like, did you speak about the cheating? He was like, oh, wh- why, would, why would that be relevant? Because you told me to go to therapy. You didn't ask me to go to couples therapy. Oh, God, he was just like... You know, he was just so good at, and, and at some point, like, even though you know he's manipulating you, you give up because it's just not worth another fight. Um, this is coming towards, like, what, like, you know, the, the straws that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, in September 2019, or, like, to, between June and September, so he broke his hand and he was off work for six weeks. And he was just obsessed with this idea that he was going to become an online gambling streamer um, because he had this associate who was making a lot of money out of it. So he was he was trying to do that and he wasn't doing his other job. And like, you know, he, he extended his medical leave because of his broken hand. And then his boss found out how he actually his hand and was really pissed and this boss of his like was some like he was an acquaintance of mine like he was a friend of a friend and he had called me before he hired my then husband can, can you vouch for him like I'm, I'm i'm going out on a limb here hiring somebody without a degree um can you vouch for him and of course you know but like i was I had the baby then, and I was like, yes, yes, yes. Uh, we're planning to stay here. He's not going away anywhere. We're, go- we're going to stay in Malaysia. Um, he's good. He's he's dedicated. You know, he needs his work permit, and he needs to get a dependent pass for our son. Um, but he, he got so used to getting lazy when his hand was broken. Like, I would be so tired, like, working a full-time job and like coming home with baby and he would be there sprawled on the couch, like with his mouth open, like sleeping. And I was like, Oh my God, you can't even offer to pick up the child. You're not like, or like the things, the bottles from the morning are not even washed. Like he didn't do anything. He, he obviously did this on purpose. So I was in debt. I was in emotional and mental abuse. I was and then he did this online gambling thing and uh, he was making money, but not from the streaming, but because he was basically laundering Bitcoin for one of his associates for a fee 
Like this guy was paying him like 5,000 Aussie dollars a month to launder Bitcoin. Something about taxes, like him being a British citizen in Malaysia allows him to avoid taxes. Um, so he was doing this and he was making this money now. And, you know, he's like somewhat famous in this small, obscure group of people who watch online gambling streaming in Australia. Like, and he, lo he loved it. He loved the attention. But these people were weird. Like people were like sending him pictures like, oh, you're so funny. I tattooed your name on my knuckles. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this guy is like so proud of this achievement, you know? And he loved rubbing it in my face. He was like, well, I'm not helping around the house because I make more money. I make more money. Um, I'm not, he told me like, you're not paying rent here. But I was paying the bills and I was trying to sort out the credit card debt and he would still be using that. Like we would be paying the minimums and then he would like spend it again and he would need to go on his visa runs and stuff like that. Like he would just put enough money to like sort it out and then like it will max out again. And then his mother came to visit that year um she wanted to take this massive sabbatical and she would be using kiel as a base because he's her favorite son and she was going to go on this exciting adventure around asia and australia she's going to hop on two cruises and travel but the two of them together are a nightmare and i only recently discovered why they have what is called an emotionally incestuous relationship like it, it sounds so dire, but that's the term they use. Um, he was always on about how his father was the alcoholic and his father was physically abusive. Like his father had strangled his mother, had punched her in the leg when she was pregnant with him and he cheated on her with her sister. <sighs> but when I look back at his relationship with his mother and really analyzed it, I was just shocked. I just remember that they would be texting each other more all day than he would even be texting me or his friends. Like when I went to sleep early with a kid, he would still be texting his mother. Um, and he would be confiding in her for things and she was confiding in him, which is actually not healthy for a parent-child relationship. And he's chased out lovers um, out of the house and stuff like that. So this family is really pretty much a Jeremy Springer talk show in real life. Like it's, it, it's too, like they are too much. And I think she actually enjoys that he runs to her when he's in trouble and he's out of money. She almost revels in the fact that he is still dependent on her and he's 36 years old right now and he's got no career no assets, and is an alcoholic deadbeat father. And she would feed into his grandiose ideas. Like she would tell him, oh, I went to this tarot card reader or some psychic. And they say that my younger son, you, will be a multimillionaire with his grand house in London. Like she was, she was really feeding into it. And like apparently his Thai ex was reaching out to her and like, 
like she was crying, like, look, your son, he's getting away with not giving my money back. And she just ignored her. So she knows what her son is doing and does nothing about it. I remember reaching out to her as well. Like he had just gotten into the car after what I realized he had spent in his Friday afternoon. He spent a Friday afternoon drinking. And I called her and I said, I said, I know he was on the phone with you just before he got into the car. And I just realized he is drunk. Like, how can you let him do that? And he just told me he want to pick up our son. There's no way I'm going to let him drunk driving in our car with our son. Like, can you please help me? Help me. I'm not asking you to go against him. You're not going against his, him. But we need, you need to help me with his, this alcoholism she's like no you don't understand he's my son i could never i could never do that to him so i I never got any help from her and it's horrible like she she's allowing these things to happen even though there are children in the picture she's allowing these things to happen and it's like she enjoyed having him this as this alcoholic mess because when you know when she's around or when he's back um, in the UK with her, he would take her on these nights out. So when we were in Singapore for our last family holiday, I told them, okay, you know what, you could go, you can go out because the, the boy sleeps at 7, 7.30. I said, you know, that, that still leaves the rest of the night. Why don't you guys go out and have some fun? Like go go to the Marina Bay Sands, go, go enjoy yourselves. There's some amazing bars in Singapore. You, sh- you, should, you should go in and have fun. But I didn't expect that fun to them meant that this 60-plus-year-old woman and this 35-year-old man would come rolling back into the Airbnb at 5 a.m. in the morning. And they would be laughing about how, oh, we spent 120 Singapore dollars on four drinks at one bar. Ha, ha, ha. And they did all this knowing full well that I had planned a whole day um, at Sentosa Island, which is like quite an intense, like you have to walk everywhere. And it's like, it's a whole day trip. And I do this because it was my son's first holiday in a long time. And he had never been to Singapore. And there was an aquarium and there was like a cable car. And they complained that the cable car was the same price as their bar tab at the bar. And I was like, oh my God, these people's priorities I, I, I couldn't believe it. So that was like the second to last straw this Singapore holiday. Like I, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. These two narcissists like feeding off each other and leaving me alone with the baby. And so we came back to KL. Uh, Christmas was horrible. Um, and then it was my birthday and that was horrible. And then it was the first week of January and she had left she had gone off to um, some island in Malaysia to start the next leg of her holiday. And we were meant to join her the following week. And my ex was like, oh, I'm so relieved. She's out of the house. I haven't had time to myself. Can I go out on Saturday night to have some time to myself? I was like, okay, sure. You know, how, like, I'm used to this, like, go out, whatever. I like that night he came home like in the middle of the night, like puking like a teenager. He just passed out. And then the next morning I had plans and he was supposed to look after 
our son. And I just realized he was either too hungover or still drunk at 10 a.m. I just didn't feel comfortable leaving him with our son. So I called my mother to help take him. So when I came back to my mom's house to take my son, I was trying to call him. And then I kept calling, 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 and I couldn't get him. Then I went back home, and I just looked everywhere, and he was nowhere to be found. I had left him passed out in the bed, and I came home, and he was nowhere to be found. And then he texted back saying, oh, um, I fell asleep. He didn't realize I was at home. And I was like, oh, my God, I am at home, and you're clearly not at home. He had been caught out in his line. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm lying, lying, lying. I'm actually at the bar drinking again. And this was 3 p.m. on a Sunday. And I hit breaking point. And that was it. That was, that was the final, like, that, that was the final breaking point for me. And it was all over. And we were arguing over the phone. I was like, I can't believe you can do this. Like, this is the fourth time in a row, like, that you, it's the fourth time in four months that you're out all night long and the moment you have the opportunity you go back out at noon to drink again like i can't do this i can't do this with my son i can't have us screaming at each other and he's getting traumatized and he was getting so angry with me of course and i was so scared that he would come back and like this time i would actually be like he would beat me up i was so scared so i packed up all my clothes and i packed up all my son's stuff and I called my mother and I was like, mom, mama, I know, I know that his mother is still supposed to be around. And I know, and I know that it's, it's the worst possible time, but I have to leave now. I have to leave. If I, if I don't leave now, I'm, I'm not going to survive. And I left and I never looked back. Um, now, in the 10 months after separating, like I tried to be nice. I tried to co-parent. I tried really hard and then the pandemic hit and he lived nearby. So even though the rules were basically, you shouldn't um, be out of the house except for groceries. Um, we, 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 you know, we would divert and drop the kid off at each other's house, but he wouldn't, he still wouldn't clean. And the house was so filthy. Like there would be, Diapers everywhere, dirty diapers, used diapers, not like I knew. There was a dirty diapers everywhere. There were cockroaches everywhere. And he was still doing drugs. And I would see, like, you can, you can tell if someone's really high in the eyes. He would be picking up our son high. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. And then there was this point, And he, he promised me that I will never, I will never leave you in debt. I, I, I promise you, I know we are like 70,000 US dollars still in debt. I'm never, I'm never going to leave you behind. Um, but then he started forgetting and canceling on his time with our son. And at that point he was only seeing him like once a week. And then I realized he's probably seeing someone new or like, like going out on dates, like, his excuse was, "Oh, I'm, 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 I'm trying to, I'm trying to make business. I'm, I'm trying to. I guess they were trying to find new ways to launder their money. I'm having a business meeting, and I thought we had made progress, and I thought we were being good co-parents. When he called me, and he says, you know, we should date other people. It's about time. It's been, it's been eight to nine months since we've separated.' I was like, okay, sure." But I, I completely forgot at that point that he only operates from guilt. And 
soon after that, I realized that he actually was already in a relationship with someone very quickly because the pandemic really when like the first lockdown ended July, maybe. And he told me, oh, we should see other people in September. So he had like got a new girlfriend really quickly. He was like, no, no, I'm not seeing anyone. I might be dating people, but I'm not like with anyone. Um, but I have this trail of evidence of all the time he forgot and cancelled on our son. And then a few weeks later, he called me to have another talk. And this time he was like, you know, um, I know I said I wanted you to see other people, but um, please, please don't introduce our son to a new man while he's still so young. Um, I, I don't I don't want my, my son to get to know another man and replace me in his life. And I thought that was weird for him to bring it up. But then again, this guy only operates from guilt, right? Which means like he's probably let my son meet this other woman. I was still fronting his contracts at the house because he didn't have a work permit when we moved to the last place. So I had to put my name on the contracts on his internet, on his um, mobile phone. And uh, when I found out that he was seeing someone, I was like, well, you know what? I, I you should, um, I'm, we're separated. I should probably not front your contracts anymore. I'm going to give you time to maybe ask your friends or ask this new girl to front the contracts. And then he started getting really angry with me for suggesting that. I started threatening me. He's like, you know, I need the internet to do my job. And if I don't have, if I can't do this, then you're not going to get the money for your, for your debts. I was like, but I canceled them anyway, because I just said, I've had enough. This is my boundary. And I've given you a, a week, two weeks to find a new person to front it. Um, so I was canceling them and he was refusing to pay me on the last bills. And he was also at this time being blackmailed by some people who he was using to set up an offshore shell company for his Australian associate. Um, he really told me too much information and I have all these screenshots. And it was just becoming clear because he needed this offshore shell company to get the work permit. And that was not happening. And because that's not happening, he wasn't going to be able to transfer the car loan because I had taken out a car loan for the family car. And after our separation, he was like, well, I paid for this car. I paid for it. I should keep it. I was like, now, I didn't want to fight and I was scared of him, right? I was like, okay. But when when this was happening, I was like, you know what? If you can't take this car loan off my name and can't basically transfer the ownership, I'm going to keep it. And if you keep it, it's stealing. And me demanding to have this car back was when he flipped. Um, he arrived, like when, when I made that, boundary he arrived earlier than the agreed time to pick up our son and he started yelling at me and threatening me from the gate like um, the houses here like um, I live in a terrace house and there's a wall and a gate so you you can't open it like you, it's an automatic gate so if you if somebody doesn't open it for you I mean if you were really desperate you could jump over it but you know in general you don't 
So he's like threatening me. And then the helper um, at this, like I'm living with my mom, heard the shouting, but she didn't realize the context and thought he was just shouting to get somebody to get in because sometimes we don't hear the doorbell. So she went to open the gate and I was upstairs and I was like, no, don't, don't you dare come in. And I ran down and I like locked the front door grill and I was like, I managed to lock it. And he was aggressively approaching and he was like shouting at me and he was like glaring at me and he was like, and I was like, tell him to back off, get off the property, please get off. You're, I don't want you on my property. You have to back off behind the gate. And he's like, who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me to leave? Who are you to tell me to back off? This isn't even your house. It's your mother's and your mother's not here to get me off the property. And I, I didn't know what to do. So I was like, I was, I was calling 999. And that's when he backs off. He hears me talking to the operator and he backs off and he, I close the gate. And I told him to leave the car keys because it's over. You just threatened me. You just threatened to take my son. It's over. Like the car is under my name. I will report it stolen if you take it. And he's shouting at me and threatening. He's like, if you dare tell the police what I'm doing, if you dare tell them, I will, I will make sure our son is deported with me. And I've hung up with 999 at this point and they're actually calling me back over and over and over again. And I'm like, unfortunately in this time, our son walks down and he sees us shouting and he starts crying. And he had been exposed to this so many times now, um, back when we were still together. And I know it affects him a lot. And it's probably the big reason I left because no child deserves to be traumatized like that. And I stop to comfort him and I carry him back up the stairs and I ask the helper to sit with him until the situation is safe. And I call 999, I call 999 again and I beg the policeman on the line to stay on the phone until either my ex left or that the police car came. And my ex isn't stupid. Like he knew that if the police came around and they saw that he had an expired tourist visa, like he'd be in so much trouble. So he left before the police came. And I think this is why since I haven't been physically bothered by him, he's, I think he's afraid of actually getting thrown into jail. And he knows I have evidence. He knows. He knows he's said too much on WhatsApp. And he knows that I made a police report on this and he's furious, but he can't do anything. He can't approach me because that's like, it it's just proves me right and from what I understand, shortly after this, he moves in with the new victim. So that's really only three to four months into them dating. So, but this time, like, I mean, obviously she, he's feeding her some other story, but if someone's really freaked out and like made a police report, would you let this person stay with you? And she's a lecturer at a local university and she's studying for a doctorate. Like she's an intelligent, successful woman. And, you know, like I also have a career and the woman bef before me has a career. And obviously there's just something in her and all of us that's insecure. And that's what he feeds into. And that's something he manipulates over and over again. And that's why I thought of the similarities with this dirty John like there can be so much evidence that this man is probably not a good guy. Like there's a police report, there's a trail of women. And he, he even admits, oh, I've cheated on everyone before. 
but he's just so good at smothering you and charming you and keeping you in the love bubble and isolating you that you just can't see through it. And now I've heard she's pregnant and she's trapped. And I can only imagine the depths that she's incurring on his behalf because he's left me high and dry with all that debt. Like he's, he's stopped paying. He's not paying child maintenance. He's not ch- paying anything. And like, I know, I know there's nothing I can do or say to get her to see the truth. She has to see it for herself. And my friends keep telling me, like, stop feeling so bad for her. Like, stop even thinking about it, but I can't help it. Like, I'm so heartbroken for her. But for now, my focus is just on rebuilding my life. And how have you been doing that? I, I... Obviously, I went to therapy and I I did some like life coaching. Um, there's this there's this book. Um, oh, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a book; it was a course. It was um, the coach calls it learning to love well, um, and it's 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 like a healing thing. So um, healing your wounds and healing the stuff that you know probably pulled in all these nasty people people in your life and just just knowing like motherhood gave me a strength i never thought i would have and i'm just so driven to create this life full of love and joy for my son that he didn't have in his first two and a half years of life and i can i can see that i've made all the right choices because he's blossomed so much since i've separated from his father um at the point I left, he had a speech delay and he was struggling with the trauma. Like he was acting out. He was tantruming so badly. Like he was an easy baby, but he had a difficult toddlerhood. And, you know, there were, there were times when he would be waking up crying because he heard the fighting and I would have to go and console him. And now, like in this, in, since I've separated from my ex and I'm, I'm building this beautiful life with my family um and it's stable and it's safe and it's we have you know we have dinner at a dinner table together and we have waffles for breakfast you know it's like it's almost idyllic and he's caught up in his speech he speaks so well now and he's 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 so amazing and i know it's because he's he's it's it's stability it's the routine and it's love he he knows he's loved so when i put him in to bed at night i'm just so grateful for what we have now and like i know he deserves this and it's taken a while for me to realize like i deserve this too i didn't deserve what happened to me none of these women deserve it um so just knowing that, knowing my worth now, know, and having that confidence in myself, like I'm offering that security for me, like I'm offering the financial security for myself and my family. Like I don't need an external validation in that sense. And I just hope and pray that I have cleansed myself from whatever was pulling this narcissist in my life, my father, my covert narcissist ex, and then in my like, so obviously horrible, scammy ex, like whatever past life karma that I was carrying before, I hope it's gone. 
And uh, so before we leave today, do you have any words of wisdom or advice for people that are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing as you? I think the evidence thing, um, when when you realize you're in this situation, even if you don't 100% believe that something is wrong, that, that listen to your gut. And just start saving things. Um, I, I told one of my friends, uh, because I was quite vocal on my social media about abuse and um, toxic relationship stuff. And after the separation, and she, she told me, like, my husband just chased me and I had to run with my passport onto the roof. I have a video that sort of shows it. I said, send it to me now. And I will hold it until you you need it. So have have trustworthy friends, or you know, just and have your own money if you can. It, I think it's harder for stay-at-home moms, or like if you can work and start saving your own money. Like if it, it will help you in starting your new life. Well, Mira, I want to thank you for being here and sharing your story with me today. You did a really good job. I know you were nervous beforehand and <laughs> you said, I think beforehand you said, I don't, I, I go, you were like, I'm not a good storyteller. And I sat here going like, well, <laughs> um, well, you proved yourself wrong. So, um, Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for telling your story. You told it really well, and you had a lot of good uh, learning lessons in there for everyone else. And for other people, you know, you're going to make them uh, not feel alone, which is the biggest part of, uh, of what we do. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and uh, sharing your story with me. Thank you, Chad. And thank you for everything you do with Narcissus Apocalypse. You're right. It makes you feel less alone. And that's really important when you're going through the most isolating experience of your life. So thank you. And on behalf of myself and Mira, everyone else who is out there still listening, I hope you have a good night.